Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. It is my joy today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Sally Weisinger. Sally felt ready to date again after the passing of her beloved husband and others in her life. She tried the updated version of the newspaper personal ads through which she'd actually originally found her first husband. So she signed on to the modern version of that, the dating websites. When she made a list of the qualities that she wanted in new love, she noticed that the first letters of those qualities spelled out an unusual word, pastrami, (laughs) which appealed to her sense of humor. The dating sites offered mixed results. So Sally decided to employ other skills and her community of friends and family to find love by offering a reward of $5,000 to be donated to a nonprofit chosen by the pastrami love liaison who successfully matched her up with someone special. Sally's unique search reminded her to appreciate the abiding friendships, the meaningful volunteer work, and her garden and her dogs. New love, she realized, would only be one of many blessings. Her story is about more than a search for romance. It's about life lived fully and the importance of deep connections and one woman's search for meaning. Her book, Yes Again, Misadventures of a Wishful Thinker, is a delight. Welcome, Sally Weisinger, to the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Betsy. It's a delight. Well, Sally, yours is a an optimistic, playful, fun book, but it is also the, the sweet is made sweeter because of the bitter. So let me start with the bitter. <laughs> you lost your husband. T- tell me a bit about your first husband and then the years following his passing where you lost other members of your family as well. Okay. Well, you've already said that he was my dearly beloved husband. I met him through the old newspaper personals back when I was in my early 30s. Well, now let's do a little nostalgia here because you were in the Bay Area, correct? Correct. And anybody who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area who is over probably the age of, what, 45 or 50, probably remembers <laughs> the Bay Guardian. <laughs> and the Bay Guardian was a long, long ahead of Match.com and OkCupid and all of those. The Bay Guardian was a place that people looked for everything from a weekend hookup to true love. 
So you found your husband, then husband-to-be? I found him through the Big Guardian, but, you know, anyone who knows the Big Guardian knows that, well, I'm from Louisiana, and I'm a military brat, and I'm Southern by heritage, although not by accent. And I was appalled when a friend said, Sally, try the Big Guardian. I just thought that was the hippiest, wildest, most leftist thing I could possibly do, (laughs) even though I've lived in Berkeley for 40 years now. Back then, it just seemed like, why don't I just wear a sandwich board and say I'm pathetic and can't meet a man? <laughs> well, to be fair, while meaningful love was certainly found through the big garden, there was a tacky quality to it as well. It was a, it was a little on the fringy side sometimes. Well, I put a two-week ad in, and I got responses from a guy 20 who wanted an older woman, a guy 30 years older than I was who wanted a younger woman, people who wanted threesomes. I mean, I got <laughs> I got responses from prisoners at San Quentin who wanted me to come visit them on weekends. That was not what was in my plan. And, but, and what year was this? Um, that was 1978. It was okay. August of 1978. And, you know, so I got 60 responses. Um and I met 12 of the people that back then they sent a, a letter to a blind P.O. box and the newspaper. Right. So you had no, they had no idea of who you were. They couldn't come to your house and knock on your door. And the 12 people I met were lovely. I mean, they were really nice. I assume you didn't meet with any of the San Quentin prisoners. I, did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't meet with the guy who wanted to spend time with a much older woman and go hot tubbing. Okay. I, so, but there were these eight maybes. I triaged the uh, responses into yes, nos, and maybes, and I decided not to meet any of the maybes. I was just, I, I was so impressed by the quality of the men I had met, the 12, that I was going to just put my ad in again and try to meet more people. But one man, and of course, that became my husband, he enclosed a self addressed stamped envelope of himself with a dog. And I just dearly love dogs. And he explained that he was divorced and that his dog was with his ex-wife. And if I didn't want to meet him, would I please send the photograph of the dog back? And so I was going to do that, except in the meantime, the postal rates went up and I needed to get a two cent stamp for all my stamps. And I waited a while And I finally said, oh, I'll meet this guy and just hand him his photo back. So we met at an ice cream store. And because he had a dog and because the postal rates went up, I was in love for 24 years. Hmm. That's a beautiful story. So you, when you were married for 24 years, he was taken. Can you tell me a bit about that? Right. He, um, he had been very, very vigorous, very athletic. He, um, he was 12 years older than I was, but you wouldn't have known it. And he did 100 push-ups a day. We took long, long bike rides, went camping. And um, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and given zero chance to live. And that was, I, I, I still, you know, remember the doctor saying, you know, there is zero chance. And we looked at each other and said, zero, we can't fight zero. So he lived for three and a half months and he died at home. 
Well, I'm so, so sorry for that loss. And I I can only imagine how devastating that was because you'd found your true love. And I had actually been married briefly for seven years in my 20s. So I think of Matt as my first husband, but he but was technically really not. my second husband. <laughs> so after Matt's death, you you know, you were just 57 when he passed away. So you were, you were still very young and vibrant and didn't want to give up on love, I'm gathering. And so tell me what ensued after that. Well, I knew that I wasn't going to give up, but it took me about a year before I felt up for doing anything uh, in the way of looking. And I was working um, and I had girlfriends and I was, you know, I had dogs and yet things really seemed bleak. So I, <laughs> I think I did Match.com and OkCupid. I had to, and I didn't think of myself as old. That was, that was the hard part. Or actually, maybe that was the easy part because it didn't stop me. But I realized that the online thing was a whole new game and that there were a lot of men my age who thought I was way too old. And I remember men saying, gee, I'm really looking for someone from you know, mid thirties to mid forties. And there I am, and they're older than I am, but I'm not anyone they're interested in. So I did have a few dates, um, met a couple of nice people, nothing exciting. And then within three months, both my parents died and, um, they lived in Louisiana in new Orleans, my hometown. And so I was constantly going back, trying to help my mother take care of my father uh, and then she died three months after he did. And and I don't want it to sound like it was a straight line because I kind of shut down for a little while, did a lot of volunteer work, walked animals, uh, worked for Lighthouse for the Blind on a nonprofit pro bono basis. I gave them back my salary and started getting myself revved up. Oh, I also bought a small house in New Orleans because that's where I went to high school and college. And was just about ready to start dating again. And then Hurricane Katrina hit. And so my house was not, I couldn't occupy it for a while. Um, And I was just getting that fixed up. And then the second really devastating, the fourth death, but probably maybe the most devastating was that my only child died. Tell me about your daughter. Um, Well, Heather was 35. Um, She had um, been a difficult child in high school. She kind of got into the wrong crowd, uh, and she had pulled herself out of it by joining the Army. My father was a career officer. Her other grandfather was a career military officer. Heather became an Apache pilot. She looked like a Victoria's Secret model, but she was tough cookie. <laughs> I mean, her the picture I have in my book of her in her Apache helmet should be a recruiting poster. She was 5'8", maybe weighed 130 pounds or 125, had bright red hair, and was gorgeous. And we had just spent a week together. Um, she was stationed with NATO in um, in Europe. And we had just spent 
a week together at Christmas, and um, she was on medication for some vertebrae that had been damaged when she uh, was taking parachute training. And she had a um, couple glasses of champagne with her friends at New Year's, which when you're on this medication, you should not do. Hmm. And she died because of a reaction between the champagne and the medication. Oh, and I'm sure that was unintentional. And it just is one of those strange things that happened. That's, you know, decades before we remember Karen Ann Quinlan, who had a similar synergistic reaction between a, a, a muscle relaxant, I believe, and alcohol. And she was therefore in a coma for many, many, many months. Boy, I'd forgotten about that. Yes. It sounds like it's, it, and it, it doesn't take a lot. It's not like she was out getting hammered. <laughs> it just takes a couple of glasses of champagne interactive with medication and somebody's biology. It's just sort of a terrible crapshoot. So your, your beloved daughter, you know, and, and lots of kids that we raise have those difficult years that, that then make, that when they kind of straighten up, it makes them extra special to us. So I can only imagine for you to have lost your love, both of your parents and your daughter in just a few short years. How did you cope with that at first? How did you get through that? Well, that was probably the hardest of all. Um, I'd like to say one thing about, about her death um, I had been with her the week before. We had planned our next trip. She said, Mom, I love you more than I love anyone in the world. And I said, I feel the same about you. Um, when I was at my computer, it was the fourth anniversary of my husband's death, and the doorbell was ringing and ringing and ringing. And I was just furious. And I got up from my computer and I went to the door and I saw a woman with a colonel's insignia on her cap, on her hat, and that was my dad's rank. And of course, I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, this cannot be happening. This just cannot happen on the fourth anniversary of my husband's death. So you got notified of your daughter's death on the anniversary of your husband's death. Correct. By the military notification officers. Right. And, and you know, the woman had, I, I tried to feel sorry for her. I just couldn't. All I could do was feel sorry for myself. But I thought, what a job. I mean, to go to the home of a parent or a spouse and tell them that their beloved person is dead. She asked if she could come in. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, not unless you tell me Heather's alive. And she said, may I come in? And I said, tell me Heather's alive. And she said, may I come in? And I said, mm -hmm. she's dead, isn't she? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, come in. Oh. But I did have a little ugly word in there, not not directed at her, but directed at the circumstances. Well, I, I think we can allow you an ugly word. Sally. Um, so I think a lot of people, after so many tragic losses, and let's just throw Katrina in there for good measure, I think that a lot of people might find themselves really closing off their heart to love. But something in you over time, and this wasn't instant, you know, after losing your daughter, I'm sure this was devastating for some time. 
But at some point, you decided to open your heart up again. What what helped you do that? You know, um, even after Heather died, I never shut down. I shut down on the personals, but I ramped up my volunteer work, walking dogs at the animal shelter, doing medical interpreting in Central and South America, doing work for the Lighthouse for the Blind, going to the gym with girlfriends, going to movies on my own. What I found was that my girlfriends were available during the day, but at night, you know, they were with their husbands. I was at a funny place, which is no longer the case, where most of my friends were still married, and I was the rare person who was single. But I really, really became... uh, I was probably walking six or eight miles a day. I was spending huge amounts of time gardening. And and after Heather died, I went into therapy. I couldn't take it anymore. I needed to just pour my heart out about what it was like to lose a child. But I never cut myself off from my friends or my activities. If anything, I ramped them up. So it sounds like it was kind of a combination of getting your social emotional needs met through friends and loved ones and indeed ultimately a therapist and then also serving others seemed to be a constant in your life whether it was your volunteer work or or also then your beloved pups as well so it sounds like that was a big part of your crossing over and and kind of re-embracing the idea of welcoming love into your life again so let's talk about that search okay i'd like to talk a little bit about, I I think in my DNA from my parents, I inherited kind of my emotional DNA that you have to do things for other people. We lived in Germany after World War II, and my mother did a huge amount setting up programs for kids, German kids, you know, whose fathers had fought against us, but kids I mean, my name is Weisinger. I I was blonde and blue-eyed. She would look at me and she would look at the German girls and say, my gosh, they look just like my daughter. And she ran an after-school program where she fed them and provided things for them and ran bingo games so they could gain prizes. And then we lived in Japan for three years, 10 years after World War II. And again, she and my dad reached out to people to connect and to help build, I guess, community between two countries that have been at war. Well, if they could do that, I could reach out to people who were less fortunate than I was. And Mm -hmm. I have a master's in Spanish. I've done a lot of teaching. And so I started doing medical interpreting um, in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Venezuela. And I found it was almost like taking a happy pill to help people who had so much less than I did. I mean, we are so privileged, Betsy. And when you help somebody by operating on their kid for cleft palate, cleft lips, or you run programs to detect potential cervical cancer by looking at lesions and removing them, it triggers I mean, I've learned it triggers dopamine and it's like a happy pill. It didn't last forever, but for weeks at a time, it would last. Mm. And I would tell myself, you cannot feel sorry for yourself. But then, of course, I would have a boohoo time 
and then I would snap out of it. But it 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 wasn't perfect. Well, I'm so glad that you steered the conversation back to there because that's sort of the answer I was asking for. It sounds as though, in addition to it being in your, as you say, in your DNA, it also sounds like something that you embraced as a value and that getting through the tough time. Do you think that it was just that also as difficult and painful and tragic as were the losses in your family, that looking at others that have so little kind of put a sense of scale to your own loss? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the families and right now I'm thinking of Peru and Venezuela, where we operated on kids with, this was with a, a, a group called Rotoplast, which is a rotary sponsored organization. And they're partially funded by Smile Train and partially funded by Rotary. And a mother will cry to you that her child gets bullied at school every day, doesn't want to go to school, stays in the house because Kids imitate the way he speaks because of a cleft palate. I, I mean, honestly, how, and it can be, it can be changed for so little money. I mean, for just with a few plastic surgeons and anesthesiologists going down, working, and, and I'm going to, that did more for me seeing a mother smile because her kid was not going to be bullied. And we're talking about a four-year-old. Right. Well, that's a special kind of medicine, isn't it? <laughs> so let me let me go ahead and shift in our remaining time to talk about the other end of your story. <laughs> the, the what yes again talks about is that you came to a point where you said, "I'm ready for love again." That part of my life is not over, and so you started the search. So you went back onto the the dating websites or whatever, but you decided on a different strategy. (laughs) Tell me your different strategy because I just love it. And I have to tell you, whatever your age, there's something to learn from Sally Weisinger about how she approached this project. (laughs) Okay. So I'd had it and, and the misadventures, there were, there were so many misadventures. I never felt unsafe, but there were there were some misadventures in the online dating because I tried a Zeusk and something else. I can't even remember. And I finally said, you know, this isn't working. And by this time, I was in my maybe late 60s, early 70s. As we speak, I'm 77. Um, and I just said, I'm not willing to quit. It doesn't have to work, but I can't quit. I'm going on and I will perhaps go to my grave saying I did my best and it didn't work. And I didn't stop doing volunteer work. I didn't stop doing medical interpreting. I didn't stop walking dogs and and loving rescue dogs. But I came up, as Betsy, you said, pastrami. That embodied the characteristics I was looking for. So tell me what the acronym, what what does it stand for? Okay, it's a little bit of a a jumble because sometimes I use the same letter for two or three concepts. That's all right. Uh, Physically active, um, let's see, A might have been, oh, animal lover, huge, S, spiritual but not religious, T meant tough but gentle, 
and it goes on and on. Um, M meant monkey business. You got to have monkey business. Meaning that he had to be playful? You had to be playful. You had to have a sense of humor. You couldn't be a curmudgeon. You had to, if not make jokes, you had to be open to other people being playful. And P would have been great for playful, but P was already taken for physically active. So at any rate, I got my sister involved and said, do you think this is the stupidest idea you've ever heard? She said, nope, I think it's great. So she helped me design a website. Her son, my nephew, actually did the, the website. And I, as you already mentioned, I offered $5,000 to a nonprofit of the person's choosing. So essentially you were offering a donation to for a charitable. So you were acting on your philanthropy, but you offered a $5,000 donation to somebody that would essentially be a yenta, right? A matchmaker exactly, exactly, to be a yenta. <laughs> and in fact, the person who introduced me to what I will call the second and equally important love of my life is Jewish. My first husband was Jewish and she used the word yenta. So at any rate, <laughs> There were a bunch of people that I handed out brochures to. I told them about my website. That was hard. That was not easy uh, for me to go to somebody and specifically say, here is a brochure. Look at my website. Tell me if you have any potential pastrami love candidates because I am (laughs) appointing you a pastrami love liaison and the ultimate, you know, if I stay with a person for one year, no marriage, just committed soulmates after one year, I will donate this money. So about 12 or 14 people set me up with people. A lot of them didn't even know I was looking because I, it was very important to me not to look needy or desperate, desperate. And I didn't feel desperate. I mean, when I started writing my book, I honestly thought it was going to have a different ending. It was going to be about how to piece together a meaningful life through friendships, through activities, through volunteer work. And then all of a sudden, this absolutely lovely man from my neighboring state of Mississippi and who we know people in common, even though he lives in Portland and I live in Berkeley, we still have Southern roots and people who know each other. So that's the yes again part. Hmm. What's what's lovely about this story, though, Sally, in addition to, I mean, of course, it's just it's just a sweet love story. And I wanted it to be made, want it to be made into a movie. Of course, it'd be a wonderful, charming film. But what also strikes me is that had the man not arrived, you had already decided to look at your life as meaningful that you looked at your friendships, your relationship with animals, your volunteer work, the things that mattered to you, that yes, there was this missing piece, but you, you, and you wanted love in your life, but you didn't, you weren't desperate because you had built a meaningful life on its own. Does that make sense? Oh, it it make, it not only makes sense, it upsets me when, when people say, oh, this is about love. And I go, yes, it is about love, but it's about love of your life. And I don't want to sound like a goody goody, but it's about love of things that we already have when we've lost something else. I mean, 
I have these wonderful mutt rescue dogs, one of whom I rescued in the Dominican Republic when I was on a medical mission. I have lovely friends. I have wonderful opportunities. And BART only makes it all better. But I really didn't count on that. I I just counted on... On not giving up and 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 being open to what happened, and thank goodness, better stuff than I ever imagined happened. But I, I couldn't have known that was going to happen. Hmm. Well, I love the the blurb that uh, the author uh, Adriana Trajani says. She says, "We're all lovers, or wish we were." And Sally shows us how never give up, occasionally give in. And don't stop believing. And that's what it sounds like is the fuel behind your your general way of living, Sally, not just your pursuit of romance, but this kind of like, you know, I need to look for, for satisfaction and meaning in all of the areas of my life. And I and a romantic relationship is only one of those things as opposed to the main one. I, I want to say that now that you know the book has been written and I look at it through the the prism you're mentioning, I can say, wow, that's a great way to look at it. And and I and I like that and I think it's true, but as it was going through it, I was just putting all the pieces together kind of helter skelter and trying I I, I wasn't that organized in my so, thinking. So the clarity wasn't there during but afterwards the clarity was not there. And there were times I was just putting one foot in front of my other and saying, keep going, keep going. And then there were times it was easy, but I don't want anyone to think it's easy. I mean, no. when you lose people you love, you, you you feel smashed into bits and you try to put them back together and then you fall down again and then you pick yourself up and then you fall down. Yes. <laughs> and I, I love that you're, that you're saying this to Sally, because I think of grief as a cyclic thing and not like a linear thing. You know, the old, remember those toys, the slinky? Oh, I love <laughs> slinky. Remember slinky? I think of that shape of the slinky, that, that spiral around and around and, and that grief and loss are, are cyclic like that. We, they go around and around the same territory many times, but if you stretch the slinky out, sometimes it, you make some progress and sometimes it's smashed together tight and it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere at all. And, and so you're talking about how, I mean, the end of your story, not even the end, the ongoingness of your story is, is a, is a happy one. And at the same time, I know that even just this week is the anniversary of your husband's and your daughter's passings. And those anniversaries, a friend of mine who's been a guest on this program calls those tragiversaries. I'm writing that down. <laughs> well, I, I will not claim credit. That's Sandy Phillips says that talks about tragiversaries and that, that even though you have a beautiful life, even though you have a lovely partner, even though you have your dogs and your volunteer work and whatever that grief cycles around. You know, you've just, what you said, I'd like to say one thing It would never have occurred to me. And, um, 
Bart had lost his wife too. She died very unexpectedly over a weekend of a thoracic aneurysm. Mm. And um, I spent 16 years before I met Bart and he had had a, a year. And I really worried that he would not be ready to meet me because he hadn't gone through the cycles that I had. Hmm. And he said to me, and I, I was stunned. He said, I said, I, you need to go through more before. And he said, Sally, I can love her and love you at the same time. I can run parallel courses. You don't take away from her. She doesn't take away from you. And Maybe that's another way of looking at it. Well, or maybe it's also that different people grieve differently and require different amount of time. Yeah, I could not have done that. I could have met the most wonderful person in the world, and I could not have gotten through enough tragiversaries to, you know, to get to the point that it was that I was open. Well, I'm so glad that you did, and your book. Yes, again, Misadventures of a Wishful Thinker is newly on the scene and folks can find it wherever they find their books, hopefully at their local independent bookstore. And it's a delight in whatever your age, whatever your stage, there's this note of playful determination as well as this open-heartedness to actually feeling the dark side of life to the, the sweet bitter the bittersweet both. And thank you so much for writing this story, for living it and for sharing it with us on the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here today. Oh, thank you, Betsy. Thank you so much. I don't think that anybody could have a conversation with Sally Weisinger without feeling just a little bit better at the end of it. (laughs) And I'd like to note that Sally's tragedies were dark. Not only did she lose her husband and her parents in short order, but then to lose her only child in such a shocking way. So it's not a story that everything was just perfect for this person, but that there was something in her that was so determined to have a rich life that she dedicated herself to making that so. And that romantic love was part of that, but it wasn't the only part of that, that as she calls her DNA, her emotional DNA of serving others was also an important aspect, her relationship with her dogs, her garden, her home, her friends, and of course, using therapy as well. But the part that also really kind of sticks in my mind is that she decided to employ a creative, playful, as she calls monkey business, element to her building her life and finding new love. Rather than just sort of putting up an ad and being passive and waiting for somebody to arrive, she created an incentive. She used her community, figuring that her friends and family members knew her best and they'd be best equipped to find love for her or to help her to find love anyway. And she employed her resources in order to do that. I wonder how many of my challenges right now could be solved more easily if I employed some of that playful creativity. I'm going to be looking for that. I'm going to look for the the things that I'm currently frustrated by or that I've been ongoingly frustrated by or things that I've desired that haven't happened. 
rather than wait, I think I'm going to take Sally Weisinger's inspiration and look at applying a little bit of fun and creativity to making those happen. A little pastrami. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And I hope that wherever you are, that you too can find the way that you can define your life and grow your life so that you can continue to bloom. <laughs>